Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your hosts for today are Brian Fox and myself, Carol Tallon. First up, I'm delighted to be joined by Paul McCourtney, president of IPAV. Paul, you're very welcome. We've spoken to your colleague, IPAV CEO Pat David, on many occasions. So I'm delighted to welcome you today and congratulations on your recent appointment in September to president. Oh, thank you, Carol. It's great to be on the show and um, looking forward to the interview this afternoon. Um, as I say, it's it's uh, probably one of the first sort of live interviews that I've, I've done since my presidency and uh, looking forward to the year ahead. I know it's, you know, the, the past year with the outgoing president, Tom Cross, it was sort of very challenging and has been, I suppose, for everybody um, over the last 12 months. But and I suppose a, a positive note, I mean, the market has held up resiliently well and, um, you know, looking forward um, from my term in office until next July, I believe. So, yeah. It's all Very good. good. Very good. Well, look, we're delighted. We're delighted you were able to join us today. And actually, I'm delighted that um, I got to see you in person. You're one of a handful of people in the industry I've gotten to see in person over the last almost two years. Yeah. Um IPAB hosted the seventh European Valuation Conference in Dublin last week, and it was an online event. But the speakers came together um, in a studio in a studio in Dublin. So um, the the European Valuation Conference, you know, that's a really big event to be hosted in Dublin. And I know IPAB partnered with Togova, um, so you might just kind of talk us through the event and why it falls to IPAB to organise yeah. and run this. Yeah, I mean, obviously, IPAB is, a, is an awarding body now for, for to go over for the, the Blue Book valuation. And, you know, in, in, in recent years, it's come to the fore now with the, the Blue Book um, valuation reports being carried out for lending institutions. And, um, you know, prior over previous years, maybe going back 10, 15 years, the Red Book would have been, you know, the, the noted book to, to go to for valuations. But um, IPAB is now seen as the, the awarding body for Ireland and um, for the Blue Book, which is recognised now as as sort of the standard right across um, the European Union. So this, you know, this conference and the last six conferences, you know, they've been a vital part for IPAB members to further their education. Um, it's a requirement now, if you're carrying out valuations for lending institutions in Ireland, that you must have a, a, a standard or a qualification of at least um, the blue book. So you can be become a, a TRV for, for residential valuations or the REV like myself, which I've got is for the commercial valuations. So, um, you know, the, the um, and with the, the, the blue book, they've just launched their, their laces edition. Um, so there's ongoing improvements. They've now launched as well a business valuation um, section, which in my view is going to be very important going forward for valuers because um, past it would have been going to the likes of accountancy firms that were valuing businesses. So now anybody that's further educating themselves up to this sort of standard will find that they'll be able to value businesses as well, not just, you know, um, assets, let's say the sale of properties or apartments or retail units. So, you know, it's all good. It's very positive going forward. And, um, you know, it's been brought to a standard, you know, now um, that's, you know, recognized throughout Europe and, and the wider world, I would have said. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, our introduction, I think, to to Gova was a number of years ago um, when we interviewed your one of your predecessors, um, Ella Dunphy. And, you know, I, I know that she would have been instrumental in working towards mm-hmm. establishing these standards. Um, look, for a professional body, how important are the European standards um, as opposed to just Irish standards? Well, again, I suppose you have to look at it this way, Carol. It's like we're part of Europe. Um, you've got, you know, you have multinationals that are coming into Ireland. They're purchasing properties. You have investors from abroad that are purchasing property. So it's not just um, just in Ireland. Um, you've also got to recognise that the, the level of standards of disqualification for people that are working within the industry, if they decide to go and work abroad, you know, they have that opportunity because it's a recognised um, certification throughout the European Union that if you know if you've if you've somebody that's worked in the industry in the commercial sector let's say and decides that they're going to move abroad um you know they have that opportunity to do so because they'll have the skill set and the qualification to be able to take that with them so it's you know it's it it's recognized on throughout the European Union um and even if they're going to the the United Kingdom you know those qualifications will stand up there also so you know it's it's all good from the perspective and it's, it's, you know, it's the opportunity for individuals that they may be working in, let's say, in the residential sector for the last 15, 20 years, um, but they decide maybe to, to move into a different area within the industry because it's not just about buying and selling property. You know, there's many more facets to the actual industry yourself, as you'd know. Yeah, well, do you know what? Now, I'm, I'm a bit of a one-trick pony, so of course I was thinking evaluations in the property context. So actually, it was really interesting at the conference to hear that, um, you know, it, it's obviously um, much broader than that. But just, I, I suppose, to bring it to a, a, into the property context, yeah. the conference on Friday was officially opened by our Housing Minister, Darrell O'Brien, and he spoke – he actually gave some great information and some great insights there into the um, – maybe some of the plans on how to execute the housing for all strategy and the role that valuers and, and indeed the wider um, real estate industry will have to play on that, you know, and also in terms of um, an introduction to the cost rental model, which of course is a new model here for Ireland. But one of the most important things I think this housing minister has done is that he seems to be listening to the industry. Would that be a fair, would that be yeah. a fair assessment? I, I think it would, Carol. And, and, I mean, look, um, Pat Davitt and and the executive within within IPAV, you know, we've we've made numerous proposals in in recent budget submissions in in regards to what's actually required um, to provide the housing for all. So there's been multifaceted inputs with regards to not just from IPAD, but you know industry sectors that have either a vested interest or they have an interest in in actually providing solutions that will you know kickstart and um, the road to getting housing for all because it it's a complicated subject it's a complicated topic and there's not one shoe that fits all so there's many there's multi levels within um, the property sector that that needs to be brought to the table in order to be able to to provide a solution. But I think the 200 page reports that the, the, the minister um, and the government have put together, you know, um, there's a lot of good information in there. And some of that has come from IPAV um, with regards to initiatives that, that need to be activated and put in place to, to, get, to get this going. 
Well, Paul, one of the, one of the things that was particularly interesting on Friday's conference is that um, there, there were speakers from different jurisdictions. So, um, you know, we started this conversation by talking about the need for uh, standards and valuation. But of course, not all of these jurisdictions are coming um, are, are presenting at the same level in terms of data available. So, for example, you know, a decade ago or a decade and a half ago, certainly Ireland could have been criticised for the lack of data. And of course, it could be better. But actually, we've made huge leaps forward in terms of the property price register. Um, you know, and, and we have more information now for uh, for valuers, you know, to, to base their valuations on. But is that a bit of a double edged sword? You know, can yeah. can there be an over reliance on the data and maybe not enough on the context? Well, I think there's probably two parts to that, Carol, because like obviously, you know, in, in the last, I would say probably several years, there's been a huge leap forward in the amount of data that's actually available in the marketplace. And um, you know, where you compare us to 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 other European countries, I would say we're probably at the, we're at the front end or the leading edge of that now, um, where we, as uh, as <clears throat> as an industry sector, I suppose, we've embraced access to the use of data and how we actually use it. Um, but there's another part to that. You've got to look at, um, you know, when you when you're drilling down, let's say, into a local or micro level, it's the it's the agents on the ground that really give you the the feel or the input of what's actually happening within a sector and you know whether that's residential or whether that's commercial now obviously i think with commercial you'll have the the larger um real estate bodies that have their own data in-house and which isn't necessarily available out in the public domain or in the wider domain and whereas the residential with the with the property price register and um the cso figures and various other figures coming into i suppose like a data pool and that data pool then. So for residential, I think that it's working. I think the commercial sector yet has probably further to go with regards to accessibility in relation to values, um, sale values anyway. Certainly lease values, you can see, you know, with the commercial property price register, there is access there <clears throat> to limited types of data. Um, but, but I see this going forward over the next several years that, you know, that is going to expand. It'll become more transparent in the marketplace. And it'll be, I mean, it's it's definitely a tool that valuers um, in relation to what To Go was doing um, can access. And they're utilizing it very well. And there's various commercial products, I suppose, that are out in the marketplace that are allowing valuers to, um, to get access to this data. And um, you can see this happening in, in other European countries. So they're using, you know, some of them are looking at Ireland as the type of model that's been used and that has been activated or it's been spun up into other industry sectors. Like just taking you back, probably I'm thinking maybe 20, 20 years ago, um, I, uh, there was a commercial um, sorry, in Malaysia. So they, they actually had a database of property values, um, but that was government-based linked so you could access, access, now this is going back 20 years ago, you could access data with regards to property transactions in that particular country at that time. Whereas we were still working off, you know, whatever was stamped in the land registry. And the only people that had access to that at the time was probably revenue. Yeah. So yeah, things no, have changed and moved and, and, and quite a lot. And um, so you can, you can see that um, the access to, to more data is going to be more transparent within the, the marketplace. And it, 
if you look at residential, I think it's been good for residential. Um, it's been positive. You know, certainly the buying public, you know, are more informed now than they would have been years ago with regards to buying a property in a specific area. Do you think in terms of the, you know, residential has powered ahead because there's a, simply a greater number of players in the market, whereas for commercial, we have a small number of yes. quite big agencies that, that deal with a lot. So actually the information uh, the information doesn't have far to travel. You know, Ireland is a small country. So, uh, you know, um, and, and there again, there are really only a handful of very large agencies <clears throat> dealing with this. But, you know, you mentioned there in terms of, say, Malaysia, you know, that, that was state information. So there's kind of a, there's a, a state system that needs to be put in place, maybe with the private sector feeding into it. Um, one of the more, one of the really interesting ways that I've seen this kind of built out was Sharon McGee, uh, Director of Rating Policy in the Land and Property Services, gave an overview as to um, how land and property services were brought together kind of essentially from three quite disparate uh, groups yeah. and sets of data. And I, I, I don't think they're they're fully there yet, but they're essentially collaborating, bringing those three pools of data together into one yeah. comprehensive service. And the technology that, that underpins that, you know, do you think, is the industry aware of the role that technology has to play? And do you think the industry is open to it? Yeah, I suppose I, I think definitely. Um, I think the industry is open to it. Um, again, uh, you, I, when you look, you know, the industry will come at it from the point of view, let's say, valuations. You know, um, where you've got AI possibly coming into play, where um, you know there's these desktop valuations that are being carried out. Um, you know, opinions of value being given, um, but it doesn't replace at the end of the day you know, an individual being on the ground, physically actually inspecting a building and taking their notes, giving their opinion, getting a feel for what's actually happening on the ground itself. I mean, it's quite easy to look at data and make an assumption with regards to um, a property value gathering specific data together. But that doesn't mitigate the fact that you're going to have to have somebody actually put eyes on it. Um, inspect the property. There could be all sorts of, you know, just as as an example, if you take a rural property where <clears throat> um, the septic tank might be in a neighbouring property, um, but nobody's been made aware of that until there's actually somebody on site some, and establishes that a septic tank is not inside the boundaries of a property and next thing there's, a, there's an easement required in order for it to be uh, to, to qualify for clear title. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just using that as a very simple and basic ex example. But yes, um, there's technology there. It's being gathered together um, where the data has been pooled from various sources coming together. But it depends on what that is actually going to be used for. Is it being used by, let's say, a valuer to compare their notes on what they've seen based on what it is and how much of that information I'm, I'm, I'm purely talking here from a residential point of view, more so than a commercial. Um, so if you take it a residential property that's been valued and if they're using sort of blue book standards, you know, there's many, there's plenty of touch points within that valuation report that have to meet the criteria of the valuer, the lending institution, to be able to qualify the value of the property. So just looking at data alone and accumulating data doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to give you the figure yeah. at the end of the day. 
Actually, I think that's a great point. And Professor Nick French certainly made that point, not just this year, but I remember him making the same point last year, as in the industry, the valuers need to really step into their role um, and you know, the, and their role at, in in um, with rising technology and greater access to data, their role is really going to be interpreting that data, putting context around it. And one of the things that I was quite surprised to hear him say was um, to be sure to add sentiment, their opinion to this, because I, I suppose I come from um, the background where I'm an advocate for data, and I think that that reveals a lot. So, um, but it's a very important point he made, uh, and it shouldn't have surprised me, but it did, to say to valuers, actually, take the data, analyse it, interpret it, uh, and record that, but yeah. then add your sentiment. Yeah, and that's it was a it was a it was a point that really jumped jumped out at me because it's like and I've seen it time and time again where um you know a valuer in their own head is is you know knows what's going on. It mightn't they mightn't be translating that actually onto paper. They'd be putting down the stats and the figures and all the rest. But again, as you say, the sentiment and their thoughts and um, with regards to how they're actually, you know, arriving at that, what is but you know whether that's commercial or residential, and more so with commercial, I would I would say you know what's the sentiment on that the particular street on a an investment property or a retail property that they're valuing, you know why are they arriving at that particular field? You know they, we know you know because of it's that specific yield, but um, you know what are the positives and negatives with regards to. And the demand for a specific type of property, it's particularly in a challenging market where there mightn't be comparables available to you. So it's getting those thoughts down on paper and, and putting them across because um, there was talk as well where, you know, valuers might feel, well, you know, they might be exposing themselves to, to whatever, or whether that's criticism or whether it's it's to something that they feel they may have stepped outside of the boundaries of what they're actually required to do. And... Um, but in the, in the same breath, I would say that, you know, if it's within the confines of what you're actually being asked to value, you put your sentiments and thoughts down around that. And, um, you know, no, not everybody's going to agree with the valuation. Yeah. Bigger at um, the end of the day. Paul, one of the things that stood out for me on the day um, when you, you gave an opening address and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a great fan of clear communication. And I think at one point you just heard urge the industry don't write down rubbish and yeah. I thought okay well that's it <laughs> that's, that's the key takeaway for today don't don't write down rubbish yeah. do you want to explain that yeah. well I mean look um and, and again you know it's you can you read some reports and it's waffle 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 you know um if you're if you're putting um, a very structured detailed blue book to go over report whether you know and particularly in the, from a commercial sense you know you have to have your facts you have to have your figures if you're giving sentiment and you're giving your thoughts there make sure that they're specific you know that they're specific to the task that's required they're specific to the type of property that you're actually valuing and that's so important because you've got to think on the other side of the fence the person that's receiving that report how they're actually perceiving it how they're reading it you're taking them through a process so you've got your obviously your commentary headline your headliners at the start but you're taking them through it's almost like telling a story and um, but at the end of that story there's a there's a there's a finale and they know they understand the report 
that you understand the process and what's you're taking through the report and then how you arrived at that conclusion. Okay. And I think if you do it in that process, you know, would, again, and I suppose maybe don't write rubbish. It, it might sound harsh, but I've come across plenty of reports in my day where, you know, the, the only place they should be is in a bin. Okay. Well, you know, one of the things we've seen is um, there's uh, a, a little bit of a covering uh, technique happening there, you know, uh, giving, giving, uh, an opinion and hope that you won't be called on it so therefore you qualify it within um, within an inch of its life and beyond usefulness um, okay finally before we finish up um, so again the the conference that, that was held last week you know it was a European wide uh, valuation conference and the theme was a practical approach to valuation in a post-pandemic economy before we finish up Paul, yeah. what's the final takeaway as president of IPAV? What's the final takeaway you want valuers to have in terms of a practical approach to valuation in a post-pandemic yeah. economy? Yeah, well, I, I again, it, I think it's whether it's 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 prior or post. I mean, look, in, in any valuer that's going out to do any report, it's, you know, the time is taken up doing your research. You know, actually going out and inspecting the building, measuring it up, doing all that, that's actually, that's the easy bit. You know, your work really starts and then actually going out and researching within the, the field that, of the property that you're valuing um, and, and gathering that data, analysing that data, making your assumptions and airing your views and putting your thoughts together. So it creates um, a full structured report that's at the, the level um, and standards that's required by Tacoba and IPAV and that will be recognised you know, as a world leading report, if it's in the commercial or residential sector. So when you actually put something to paper, it's delivered to whoever has um, appointed you to deliver that report, that it looks professional and it's at the standards and levels that it should be at, to be recognised by Tagova, um, IPAB and the, the lending institutions throughout Europe. Okay, I think that's a good note to finish on. Thank you so yeah. much. That was Paul McCourtney, President of IPAB. Thank you again for joining us today. We need to take a quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM Welcome back to Property Matters here in Dublin South FM with myself, Brian Fox and Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or an email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com We're now joined by James Benson of the Home Builders Association and the CIF and with Connor O'Connell uh, of the CIF. So Connor, let's just begin with this. A judgment issued on Friday in the Cork County Council versus Minister for a Local Government and Planning case you might just talk us through the background of that case. Um, very briefly, Brian, um, and thanks for the opportunity to speak to you today. And very briefly, this case arose out of a variation to the county development plan, which proposed an outlet centre similar to the Kildare Outlet Centre on the outskirts of Cork City in Carrick Tool in County Cork. It required a variation to the county development plan to facilitate the development. The office of the planning, um, the office of the planning regulator, made a recommendation to the minister um, based on the variation, and setting out the reasons that the variation to the county development plan should not be made. Um, so, look, the statement of reasons essentially offered two reasons. Firstly, that the variation has not been made in a manner consistent with the recommendations of the OPR, and secondly that the plan uh, varied by the variation purports to identify a preferred location for a retail outlet centre in advance of the preparation of a joint retail strategy. The important words, I suppose, in, in that recommendation is, the, is that it is a recommendation from the OPR based on guidelines, not law. 
So this matter reached the High Court and Judge Humphreys, in his wisdom, um, sided with Cork County Council. And, you know, some of the language in it is, is pretty strong in relation to the differential between a guideline and law. So Minister Humphrey supported Cork County Council's ability to vary their own county development plan to facilitate the development because guidelines should not be slavishly followed. In other words, um, I suppose one of the, and we can talk about this later on, but one of the important factors from a local development perspective, from a local democracy perspective, and from a local planning perspective, is that it, it allows local authorities to... Um, be flexible in their approach. In other words, uh, there was also, you know, discussion in the judgment in relation to what the words having regard to. You have to have regard to guidelines. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to follow them. And that's very, very important for the time period we're in at the moment, where there's many guidelines out there in relation to density guidelines, guidelines in relation to local authority development plans, housing need assessments, all of that is being undertaken by local authorities right around the country at the moment. And what this judgment says effectively um, is that local authorities can have and must have the flexibility to decide local planning for local areas. That's it in a nutshell. From from our perspective and our, from our initial reading of it, uh, Brian, that's our perspective on so it. So it goes back to the local authority, really, again. Exactly. And did you view that as a good thing then yourself? Or? Absolutely, because, you know, some of the guidelines in relation to, for instance, if we move away from this particular judgment now and look at the process that's been undertaken by local authorities at the moment, they have to assess the quantum of land they need to zone for residential purposes based on population projections. Uh, those population projections are based on the census of 2016. And as we know, a lot has changed since 2016. There's been an acceleration in population growth in certain areas. There's also been post-COVID, what are the population growth? We don't know that. So local authorities at the moment need the flexibility to zone lands uh, we would say in a tiered approach, tier one is service land and uh, tier two is lands that are capable of being serviced within the lifetime of the plans. But there also needs to be greater headroom or flexibility to allow local authorities to say, you know, here we have another tier of lands that should tier one and tier two lands not become available for development purposes. We have this flex, this headroom, this flexibility to facilitate development where it should take place um, within, you know, the... Would this be viewed then as a sort of a landmark decision, uh, legally speaking? Uh, Look, I'm not a legal legal eagle, Brian. I'm sure Mm. they're they're going through it in detail at the moment, but absolutely. This is, from our perspective, it is absolutely a landmark case that allows local authorities greater flexibility when it comes to an assessment of the lands that are needed for development purposes. Absolutely. (laughs) Connor, I might just jump in there. You know, you're talking about this, you know, what what's the unintended consequence here? You talk about the flexibility of local authorities to zone land. What about the flexibility of local authorities to de-zone land, you know, which has been a growing conversation in Ireland? Um, you know, also, does this undermine the National Development Plan? And if so, where does that leave our housing for all glo- uh, national strategy? No, well, the National Development Plan is for infrastructure and the National Planning Framework is which which has given rise, you know, to the um, to um, the, you know, the population growth projections around Ireland, etc. 
Um, I don't see it as undermining it at all. I see it as allowing local authorities to assess the national planning framework in the context of their own local area. For instance, if you look at, if you apply a very strict mathematical you know, assessment of lands and their ability to deliver residential units, then it, it's a very rigid approach. Um, if you look at, you know, the situation in Cork City and other urban areas, you know, our topography is a lot different. We have to build access roads, retaining walls, you know, because of the hilly nature of our city, which doesn't allow certain lands to deliver what in theory they should be capable of delivering. There's also biodiversity exclusion zones. There could be pilot pylons. There could be many, many reasons why one hectare of zoned residential lands cannot deliver the quantum of units that in theory should be able to deliver. And what this allows is local knowledge, local flexibility to be applied. We're not looking for lands to be zoned willy-nilly. They, they have to be zoned within the context of what the national planning framework sets out. But local authorities also have the ability to interpret the national planning framework and what it means for their area. Okay, James, I might just bring you in here. What does this say about the role of the Office of the Planning Regulator? I think first off, the Office of the Planning Regulator is still in its infancy. You know, they're only established a number of years at this point in time. So, you know, their role is still being fleshed out. Um, and I'm sure that they, they would equally agree that they don't have all the right solutions at any one point in time. Um, I think the, the decision itself, again, as, as it is a landmark decision, this, you know, I think it rightly puts local democracy back at the centre of all discussions of what's going to, like, who better, who's better placed than those within the area, within the old, their own jurisdiction to make the plans for the future within that area. Um, I think if we take it back a level, you know, you have the National Development Plan, National Planning Framework, and this sets out laudable objectives, you know, at a national policy level for sustainable and future delivery, and that's in line with Project Ireland 2040. Now, you have the Regional Spatial and Economic Strategies, and these look at how this can be delivered within the jurisdiction of the assemblies, and we have the Western, the Eastern, and the Southern assemblies that look at that. And within that, they each directly quote that there's going to be a series of facilitative measures. And that word and phrase is very important that it's facilitative and that they will look at transitional arrangements, prioritization of lands and proper land assessment. Again, it shows that these need to be looked at at local level and by those that are best placed to do it. So I suppose a rising, we've been looking at this very closely for the last number of years, and this is from concerns raised by our old members up and down the country and by those connected to the industry and those within the industry, because it has become apparent that some of the local authorities, I suppose in one way, they've been constrained from, of, from delivering what they need to do in their own areas. You know, they you need to look at population targets, as Connor has said, you need to look at headroom, you need to look at house needs demand assessments. Unfortunately, you have the misalignment of when each of the county plans are being formed. They don't all happen at one time. They're each being fed in different levels of information depending on where they are they were at within their cycle. And that in itself poses difficulties because we're trying to comply with a national policy, but we're at different stages of the county development plans. We commissioned a number of reports in the last 12 months that looked at this in detail. And unfortunately, we have seen large trenches of lands being dezoned. And now, as Connor said, this isn't, you know, we, no one's looking for additional zonings. But there is a misconception out there that zoning and zoning of lands leads to bad planning. The only thing that leads to bad planning is poor planning. And I believe that there's enough checks and balances in place at this point in time that we just don't have speculative development like we would have had a number of years back. 
But I suppose key to this is that there needs to be tiering of lands. Sorry, you need to have the defer any current dezonance until we have the full set of information and everyone's given equal opportunity at their own point in time within a county development plan. So we had initially called for the statutory timelines of when these plans would be published to be more aligned or then to be given flexibility of how that they might need a postponement of those plans. We need to defer any dezonance until we have the full land assessment. What would be criminal would be that we would have lands dezoned that have infrastructure investment in place, that those lands would be capable of development, but they would be dezoned at the expense of lands that would be at a national level perceived to be the ideal location for development. But in real, in real terms, they will never be developed on whether they're infill or brownfield contaminated sites or services just can't be brought to those lands. So we cannot have a situation where we defer at the, or dezone lands at the expense of lands that can bring forward development. And that brings back into point the local democracy level. You know, it's been a well-highlighted concern from people through the SHD process that yeah. there wasn't enough local democracy. Again, this in effect means in a lot of cases that up until now, up until this judgment, the, the, the local authorities, in my opinion, have been constrained. You know, again, I, I don't know how many times we, I think we can't say this enough times, they're best placed, you know, to deliver. They know their lands inside out. To do this from elsewhere around the country is very difficult. Actually, if you look at, there's an interesting statement in the, the County Development Plan guidelines, and it's, that's actually in the foreword of it, that a development plan is a sig significant function of the local democracy through which important choices for the future development of an area are decided and detailed by local communities and their elected city and county councillors. So again, this is about local democracy and those that are best placed. And it's very difficult for me in Dublin to tell Connor in Cork what would be best for, 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 for Connor in Cork. Connor knows his area better than I do. So again, we all need to comply with the laudable objectives of national policy, and there's good reasons for that, and there's good objectives within that. But again, flexibility and discretion with those who are best placed to do it, that's critical. So I'm just wondering... Sorry, sorry, just, no, go ahead, Brian. I just, just from the point of view of... Um, just, did, did, would this have any reflection then on board Planola, or would it, would it undermine on board Planola for that matter, from that point of view? In other words, from... You know the strategic housing developments that we have at the moment. I mean, um, is 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 the judicial judgment any reflection on that? Would you would you uh, surmise? But again, no. I suppose we're not legal experts in it, but I think yeah, it's, no, going be, I, well, yes, it's going to be yeah. it's going to be one cog in, in 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 a bigger element. But it does highlight the difference between policies and guidelines and what needs to be taken with regard to or what needs to be mandated to abide by. But I think there's an important piece of this conversation as well as to why we're so concerned about the, the level of dezonance that are currently happening. This is all. This is about sustainable and future delivery. You know, the private industry is being tasked with delivery of 30,000 to 33,000 units, you know, every year for the next number of decades. We can only do what we can do. I suppose for, from a home builder's perspective, we can build a home in 16 weeks, that's probably gone down to 25 weeks when you take into account labor and materials and everything that we've seen over the last 12 months. That's within our control and, and you know, and that can be done very effectively and is done very effectively and efficiently. Unfortunately, if you look at what goes before that, if you look at the zoning and the time it takes for our lands to be designed through a county plan, if you look at the infrastructure, identifying the infrastructure, and we are all, we've had discussions on this in the past about the the, the, the impact that we've seen because of the, the deficit in infrastructure investment, particularly in water and wastewater services over the last number of years. For that to happen, so zoning, infrastructure, planning, and we all know the issues and the time it takes to get through planning, and then to come along to build, that is taking years, if not decades, in a number of cases. Unfortunately, our current life cycle plans only last five years. 
So it's very difficult to shoehorn all that within that small period of time. And all the more critical that we have a tiering system that, as Connor mentioned earlier on, let's put in tier three lands in place that we can identify and put infrastructure in place now that will mean that residential delivery can happen in forthcoming county development plans or subsequent county development plans. If you look at some of the boroughs in the UK, actually, they have a 12-year life cycle because they, they see that it does take longer than just a number of years to build. And that's something we should we should seek to replicate, in my opinion. Yeah, James, you've you've covered so much there. I need to break it down. And um, so, first of all, um, let's start with kind of the more obvious or basic steps: aligning county development plans. My understanding was that was already in train. Are we not aligning the timing of county development plans at this stage? Well, no, because we're at we're at different stages. Because if you, if even if taken it back a step, there we had the adoption of the regions regional economic and spatial regional strategies from western, eastern, and southern at different points and times. But as as you know, you if we go to each of the different councils, some are far more close to adoption than others. You know, we have Mead, which has been adopted now with their county plans, but we've others that are only still going through the process. And I would feel for those within the local authorities trying to complete that because the amount of time, resources and expertise that it actually takes to identify and carry out proper land assessment within their own functional areas to see and take into account future business and expansion plans, because this isn't just about housing, it's about county development plans look at all type of, of future delivery. It's very difficult for any authority to do that. And even more difficult if you're getting in different bits of information, you know, a new housing needs demand assessment criteria, yeah, new population targets, looking at new migration figures. We know that CSO June 2022 is when the updated figures will become true. Unfortunately, some of the plans are being, are based on migration figures that are already shown by the CSO to be outdated. You know, we had significant increases. We had 8,500 rising to 12,500 for migration figures over a number of years back. This is already shown to be nearly in 36,000 in a number of cases. So, our concern would be that the, the goal that we're setting for ourselves isn't high enough and subsequently we won't have enough land available to meet those goals. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, um, and sorry, Carl, uh, just yeah. a very important point on that, right? If we talk about the cost of delivery, right, and affordable housing, and if we're really concerned about that, we should not be constraining the most important or one of the most important raw materials for residential delivery, which is land. You constrain the supply of land artificially by by narrowing you know the quantum of housing units that's needed it's going to increase in the costs it's going to mean land costs are going to increase and that's going to in turn impact on the consumer yeah you see there, there's so many different elements here and you know logical thinking will say okay well let's let's look at the construction industry what's within our control so um in terms of planning there's been a lot of planning changes over the past decade you know, what we're seeing is a move towards a more empirical approach, which is good. So through the regional strategies, you know, we're seeing this more data-driven approach to planning. That's what we want. We want to see greater alignment of the county development plans. So that's a good thing. You know, you've mentioned there in terms of uh, certainly the SHD process in its current guise was criticised for its lack of local democracy. We know that that's something that is being addressed through you know, the, the upcoming scheme, the, the large residential development scheme, you know, that's being addressed. So it, it seems to me that a lot of the bigger issues are in the process of being tackled. So then, and, and by the way, I would see the appointment of the Office of the Planning Regulator as one of those. Um, and, and that's why it's really important that as the process is being 
put to rights, which is all, was always going to take time, that we don't have elements of it undermined. But the construction industry itself, I mean, Connor, you know, you touched on there, um, you know, the cost of are uh, one of the most important raw materials being land, but we're also in a, a, a spiral, an upward spiral of construction costs, um, uh, construction cost inflation. What can the construction industry control at this stage to get on track for this 30 to 33,000 output annually um, in residential units? Are we looking at adoption of modern methods of construction? Do you think the industry has done enough for, you know, for what is within its control? So, for example, you know, utilising emerging technologies that we know are there. Absolutely, Carl. Um, look, uh, the use of technologies in the construction sector has actually accelerated in the last two years because of the, the cost issues, the cost of materials, cost of labour has accelerated so much. If you look at it at the moment, uh, there's many builders out there who would have traditionally built brick and block are now using timber frame, uh, a sust more sustainable way of constructing as well. Um, look, where you're talking about the ICF system, the insulated concrete formwork system that is growing as well. There is, there's no such thing as as drawings anymore on the site. You have your 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 pad with you. The industry is undergoing that, but all of our when we're doing our utmost, and you know yourself, profit is always the most efficient motive to try and drive uh, further. You know, technology and the advancements of technology. So we are getting there. There's more to happen. Volume is an issue in terms of the adoption of more modern methods of construction. Ireland is a small market, believe it or not. It's a very small market in European terms in terms of residential construction. And then within Ireland, we have a very fractured market as well. So the volume you know, required in different areas for different builders isn't there to justify some of the adoptions. Uh, and you know, the experience of our members is that they can be costly and you need the volume. So look, we do face that issue. Having said that, Carl, we're making significant inroads in relation to the adoption of more modern methods of construction. That yeah. is happening. Yeah, Connor, that, that's really positive to hear. But just in terms of, you know, you talk about um, the volume being low, so therefore it's difficult to get these economies of scale. Are we running into issues, the fact that our existing off-site manufacturers are essentially being acquired by their customers? Is that making the, is, is that essentially making the, the pool of available uh, manufacturing facilities smaller. I don't know, Carl. I I I don't know on that particular one. I haven't heard of of, of a, a mass takeover of the manufacturers, James. Maybe. Well, I, I, there is an important point I think we need to uh, for, to make listeners aware of on this, Carl. I suppose, and if we take a worked example of this here, and say we can bring a whether it be light, a timber frame, like edge steel, whatever the case is, we can bring a unit which will ultimately be a home for a family. And we need to bear that in mind that this is for a family in the, in the long term. But I use the term unit to site. And say we can bring in that unit, plug and play, and we're bringing it forward three weeks ahead of time. And that's great. But then subsequently, does that actually, can we get that house connected to both power and water supplied at the same time? Because a builder will have to take into account bringing into a unit early, then he has to pay for that unit. He is also at the same time paying back funders, you know, which would have funded the development. So are all those things happening at the proper time? Because to bring in stuff earlier and to have greater assets and strained assets on the ground earlier means that you're paying back interest and funding for a long period of time if you can't ultimately get the connection and power in. So all the more important that we, we need to control what we can control and bring efficiencies into it. But that 16 week period pales in comparison to, you know, 
a 16-week period for confirmations of feasibility on water supply, 30-week period on average for connection applications to be received, and then in some cases years for uh, the infrastructure upgrade works for those service requirements. So we can control what we can control within a very small cog, but that does have to happen. We do need to see efficiencies, but also on the wider delivery system, and that has to account for the zone and the infrastructure and the planning right through to the build. James, in terms of, um, say, you know, you reference their water connection, you know, that's an issue that we've discussed, I'm going to say, more than a year ago, you know, prior to COVID, possibly even two years ago. Is that improving? Well, I would think, I would hope that we're going to see some light at the end of the tunnel in, in respect of this car. We've the housing for all and we budget and we had the national development plan within a five week period. Now, that's those elements are going to define housing delivery and more construction, the industry for the next 10 years and beyond that. We saw now that Irish Water have been given significant investment. That will be a combination of strategic investments and infrastructure upgrades. What we will be very keen to see is what money is going to be spent and how is it going to be spent to enable local network reinforcement. It's all very well and good that we have a major pipeline bringing down water supply into whether it be to Cork or to Dublin, to Mead, Roscommon, whatever the case may be for ourselves. The connection delivery services element that connecting that big pipe into a new home, that's where the, the blockage is at the moment. That's the hurdle that needs to be overcome. So we need to see local network reinforcement. We need to see enough flexibility being given to the industry that they can carry out those works in a more timely and efficient manner to the same level and standards and specification and certification that Irish Water demand. And we have seen the benefits of that from that side. But that works can be done under supervision and in compliance. And the industry is best placed and the, and the subcontractors and the contractors within this industry are best placed to do those works. Um, James, the Irish Home Builders Association, you know, are your members, are, are they confident that the target set under housing for all, that they can rise up to that? Fully, and I'm fully confident as I've seen from what our members are doing. I've seen the expansion plan of our members, but we just need to look back over the last 12 months, Carol. We have a case now that we were shut down for nearly five months in some cases. We will still top out at just over 20,000 units this year. So if we see the, the, the efficiencies that we would have, the resilience of the sector, the expertise, it's all there. It's all pointing towards that 33,000. I think key to that is that Will those connected to the industry outside of the private industry be able to keep up with the private industry? That's where I would see the biggest hurdle that needs to be overcome. But I've seen enough. I, I think the appetite is there with all connected to state and semi-state bodies to actually deliver on this. No one wants to be the one that's not going to deliver. The private industry has made promises on what it will deliver, and it will deliver on those. We have done in the past. We continue to do so in the future. We need to see the same level of urgency with those connected to the industry, you know, replicated that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, no, that's that's very compelling, James. Thank you. Um, Connor, just before we wrap up, I know um through the CIF across the Munster region, you you hosted your first in-person events over the last uh, couple of days. What are you hearing from your members? Very busy at the moment, uh, Carl. There's a lot of accelerated programs out there. There's in terms of residential, there's a very, very significant demand, especially in the coastal locations. So when we were down in Waterford last week, it was quite clear that there is a very, very significant demand, people moving back to regional Ireland. So it, it was all very positive, Carl. Uh, the big concern was about material cost increases, um, you know, labour cost increases. Um, the big concern was just 
you know, getting it done, um, Carl, which is great. It's great to hear. Um, yeah. So it's all very positive. And we just, you know, we look forward to the National Development Plan being rolled out and delivering the number of units that are in housing for all. Because, you know, again, as James has said, we we can see it um, on a daily basis here around the region, you know, more housing sites opening up. And that's great to see. Um, so, you know, positive, Carl. No, that's good. Look, there's a real feeling like um, people are starting to roll in the same direction. You know, it just it's so important to get that coordination right. And that needs to be across public and private sector, um, really unified by policies. You know, and it, it feels like we're getting there. But look, it's a, it's a frustration transition. And um, that's all we've time for today. Thank you to James Benson of the Irish Home Builders Association and the CIF and Connor O'Connell of the CIF. That's it from us this week. Thank you for listening into Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or indeed email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Our thanks to Peter Rice on sound. We're back at the same time next week. From Brian Fox and myself, Carol Talbot, and all the team here, stay safe.